Hey everybody, I'm Mike Yeager, and I want to thank you for checking us out. Welcome to Vessel. We're so excited to get things rolling here in Meadows Place. It has been a blast so far. If you're in the Meadows or nearby in Southwest Houston or Fort Bend County, Stafford, we would love to meet you. Or if you know anyone in the area searching for a Christian community that is Jesus-centered, justice-minded, and a safe and inclusive place for all people. We are gathering regularly through the fall during this initial planting season and invite you to join us on this shared journey of healing and hope. Here's the message from this weekend, and we pray it is a blessing to you. So, good morning once again. So, so most of you all know my son, Miles. He's right there. Those who do, you know what a kind and hardworking and funny guy he is. I love him so much. I'm making him so uncomfortable. But in recent weeks, he's, been, he's picked up this new habit. And it is driving me absolutely bananas. He won't stop. And, and I do want you to know that I have his explicit permission to share this with you all. So, so here it is. This is what Miles is doing that is, is making me go just totally berserk. He keeps calling me dad. Dad, can I show you something? How was your day, dad? And, and you, you might be thinking, well, Mike, that doesn't sound like a very big deal at all. But it is. And it's a big deal. Ooh, because I was not prepared. And I think that some of y'all probably know where I'm going this, with this. For 10 years, this little boy has come to me, whether delighted or excited or scared or confused. And he has called me daddy. It's a word that speaks volumes. It's innocence and it's reliance and it's trust. But then one morning, all of a sudden and henceforth, that changed. And my firstborn child is growing up, as is true of Mara, as is true of, of all of these, these kids. And, and I am not ready. So no one tells you. No one tells you that it's the last time that your, your child will come to you to bandage a skinned knee or to crawl up in your lap for no other reason than proximity and embrace and ask you to check for, for monsters or to reach out and squeeze your hand as you're crossing the streets. No one tells you that it's the last time when you're in that moment. Time moves so fast and change happens so, so rapidly and grief slashes across our lives when we least expect it and it scares the daylights out of us and we struggle to make sense of it because time is so fleeting and we're reminded every day how precious and how fragile our, our cosmically brief lives are and how little control we truly have over the vast majority of, of all that happens around us. And many of us, I'd wager to say most of us, have a tendency in the face of those fears to either grab hold and just barrel ahead with the illusion of control, putting faith in, in earthly abundance and contentment and security, and even if and when it comes at the expense of others. Or we give in to the seeming futility. And, and we be, begin to believe that we're, we don't belong, or that we're not enough, or, or that people look at us with disappointment, or we battle those feelings within ourselves, or, or the world appears to be such an unraveling mess beyond repair, and we're overwhelmed just thinking about it all. And so we, 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 we withdraw, and we isolate, and we medicate. And there's not a one of us that doesn't fight the urge to deny or to avoid or to numb the feelings that loss and change 
can bring about. It's human. And I know it's on many of your minds this week as our little city mourns the sudden passing of John Francis, a close friend to many of you all. And we continue to hold you and all of his loved ones in prayer and crucially to continue to come alongside the community, coming alongside the family and facing the unknown. Because the truth is, is no matter how old we get, we are still afraid of the dark, by which I mean we are afraid of what we cannot see, what we cannot understand, what we cannot control. And so with that in mind, I would love to invite the kids to join me. Hey, kiddos, can you hear me back there? This is a test to see if you're listening to me at all. I would love to invite you guys to come up for a story time. Can I read a book to you guys? You don't have to. This is an open invitation. You can come if you want to. And actually, Lauren, can you do the slides for this, please? Okay, perfect. All right, so you make your way up here. Got a nice, like, rug for you. The pictures are going to be on the screen for everybody else. Come on up here. Okay. So tell me, um, have any of you read this book? Well, I know. It's your book. Has anyone else read this book? The Dark? No? Okay. So uh, I'm going to actually, actually ask you a question, and you do not have to answer at all. You can answer if you want to, but I'm curious, and I bet other folks are curious. Are, is there anything that you are afraid of? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm deathly afraid of bees. Bees. I just, I, I know they're not, like, dangerous, but yeah? Um, Clowns. Clown. Cl oh, creepy. Yes. Snakes. Snakes. Yes, Mara. <laughs> yes, Mara is our little like fearless one. Yeah. Wasps. Wasps. Yes, subset of bees. Wasps are included. Exactly. Yeah. Lice. Lice. Ooh, yes, we have we have done that. Few parents are yeah. So, uh, so I'm gonna read this book. So the dark. And so actually, no, I have one more question. So who do you go to when you are scary? Who in your life? Yeah? My family. Your family, yeah? Yes? My mom. Your mom. Moms are great when it's scared. My dad. Dad, thank you. <laughs> See, I'll pay you under the table next time, later. Yes, my mom. My dog. Your dog. Oh, yes. Lewis gives the best little hug. So I'm going to read this book, and then I think it's going to give us some things to think about, okay? So this is called The Dark. So Laszlo was afraid of the dark. Yeah, you guys can just look at the pictures up there. How about? Perfect. Now I can read. This works out great. The dark lived in the same house as Laszlo. A big place with a creaky roof, smooth, cold windows, and several sets of stairs. Sometimes the dark hid in the closet, and sometimes it sat behind the shower curtain, but mostly it spent its time in the basement. All day long, the dark would wait in a distant corner, far from the squeaks and rattles of the washing machine, pressed up against some old damp boxes and a chest of drawer, doors nobody ever opened. At night, of course, the dark would spread itself out against the windows and the doors of Laszlo's home. But in the morning, the dark would be back in the basement where it belongs. And Laszlo would peek at the dark every morning. Hi, he would say. Hi, dark. Laszlo thought that if he visited the dark in the dark's room, that maybe the dark wouldn't come visit him in his room. But one night, it did. Laszlo, said the dark in the dark. 
The voice of the dark was as creaky as the roof of the house, and as smooth and as cold as the windows. And even though the dark was right next to Laszlo, the voice seemed very far away. What do you want? asked Laszlo. I want to show you something, said the dark. In here? No, said the dark. Here? No, no, said the dark. Darn downstairs. Downstairs? Yes, said the dark. In Laszlo's living room was the biggest window in the entire house, and Laszlo looked out at all the dark outside. Above him, the roof creaked, and he closed his eyes, and now the dark was all Laszlo could see. No, no, said the dark, not there. Down here. In the basement? asked Laszlo. Yes, said the dark. Laszlo had never dared come into the dark's room at night. Come closer, said the dark. Laszlo came closer, even closer, said the dark. You might be afraid of the dark, but the dark is not afraid of you. That's why the dark is always close by. The dark peeks around the corner and waits behind the door, and you can see the dark up in the sky almost every night, gazing down at you as you gaze up at the stars. But without a creaky roof, the rain would fall on your bed, and without a smooth, cold window, you could never see outside. And without a set of stairs, you could never go into the basement where the dark spends its time. Without a closet, you would have nowhere to put your shoes. Without a shower curtain, you would splash water all over the bathroom. And without the dark, everything would be light, and you would never know if you needed a light bulb. Bottom drawer, said the dark. What? Bottom drawer, said the dark. Open the bottom drawer. Thank you, said Laszlo. You're welcome, said the dark. By the time Laszlo got back into bed, the dark was no longer in his room, except when he closed his eyes to go to sleep. The next morning, Laszlo visited the dark in the basement. Hi, he said. Hi, dark. The dark didn't answer, but the bottom drawer was still open, so it looked like something in the corner was smiling. And the dark kept on living with Laszlo but it never bothered him again. That's the story. The end. So I'm curious, does that make you guys think of anything in particular? Does it give you any questions that, that it brings to mind? So you know that when Jesus died, that he, in a sense, kind of went down into that place that we're afraid to, we're afraid to go afraid to go into that dark basement. And Jesus went into that dark basement and he came back bearing what? This <coughs> little light bulb. So when we're home, when you're at a place where you are home and you're loved, you're loved by your family, you're loved by the God who made you, who knows you, who loves you, that you do not have to be afraid. It's, it's said in the Bible over and over and over again, be not afraid. And it's knowing that God loves us. It's knowing that we are part of a family and a community that loves us that help us to be unafraid. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. So, hey, I'm going to ask you. You guys can go back to, to Mommies and Daddies, or you can go back to the, the artwork uh, where you've got a little bit of a, a project that you can do, and you can make a visual representation of the things that kind of light up your world when you're scared. Yeah. Friends got them right there. So how about you guys? You guys did such a great job. Thank you. 
Okay, so you head back to mommies and daddies, or, or moms and dads, I should say, moms and dads. Miles is saying mom as well, I should mention that. Lauren is just handling it better than I am. So now it's y'all's turn. What are you afraid of? Not everyone at once? No, I'm kidding. Um, so the reason that I wanted to do that is that because over the next few weeks, the, the next few Sundays that we gather in this way, uh, we're going to walk through a few... Oh, and actually I can... Oh, you have that. I need that. Great. So the next few days we're going to be gathering. We've got our next date set up. October 22nd and November 12th, we're going to be back in this room. I am already in talks with the city, and I'm very hopeful that as soon as the next time we gather, we may be sending our kiddos over to the nature center next door. So like, fingers crossed that it all works out. All right, so we're going to walk through a few key dimensions of the vision that I hope we come to share for this community. Some of you know that I, I first wrote about the ethos for Vessel as a component of my coursework centered around church planting while finishing my degree at Fuller Seminary. And, and what I came up with at the time, you know, hopefully uh, aided by the spirit in discernment, was my faithful attempt at answering an incredibly complicated question as concisely as possible. Who are we? Who is this imaginary community, this church that I'm making up for the purposes of this grade, and now is a lot of real people with a lot of complex histories and, and, and personalities and, and needs and all of it. And, and I, I grew up Catholic, but my faith has since diverged from the path still followed by much of my family. You all have your own histories and, and the beauty of those rooted practices, and maybe disappointments, and maybe a few wounds with regard to the context's in which you have been part. Because this is, you know, some of the great irony is that one of the most consistent themes throughout all of Christian history, and to this day, remains fracture. Just division over countless theological divides, whether they are massive or microscopic. And, and people want to know what, what box to put you in. And what they're often really asking is, are you with me or against me? And that can be a fair question, especially considering the great harms that have been perpetrated by the church. Am I safe here? Are the people that I care about who have been abused or othered within religious systems safe here? But it can also mean the opposite, like a morality test. Like, do you, do you disagree with? Do you oppose? Do you assume the high ground over the same people that I do, which only feeds in to the soul sickness pervading so much? of Western Christianity. So call it non-denominational, call it post-denominational, call, you know, call it uh, ecumenical, that, that is promoting Christian unity across diverse intersections, if a, if a simple label is at all helpful. But I propose instead that as a jumping off point um, for a reflection, and if you've been around, you've heard it by now, that we as followers of Christ are embodied stories molded and mended by Jesus voyaging together, bearing love to every horizon. And that sounds nice, but what does it mean? And so we're going to consider the first one today. And what I don't have time to do is, is really belabor much the, the first part embodied, which is so critical and important, and it's a whole conversation on its own, and we will absolutely return to it. But for now, may it suffice to say this, that the matter of your being 
matters. Exactly as you are, that you are a beloved soul inhabiting a beloved body, and I lament and grieve along with any among us who have been led to doubt either of those truths. But for today, let's talk about story, the stories we tell. We store, the stories we tell in our homes and our communities matter. The voices, the, the neglected voices that we choose to elevate matter. Whom we choose to include matters because it is through the stories we consume and the stories we pass on that we declare whether we realize it or not, what and whom we believe matter most. And we tell stories to, to help process our fears of what we cannot see, what we cannot understand, cannot control, like Laszlo in the dark, and they help us to make some sense of the world and the cultural, the relational, the emotional dimensions that are so dizzyingly complex. And Jesus, of course, knew this, which is why he very rarely gave a straight answer. It starts to get really funny after a while, if you're reading the, the repetition. I kind of get why the powers that be were so frustrated, how maddening it must have been to ask a question that in their mind was very important, only to have Jesus entirely ignore them, answer the question with a question, change the subject, call them out on their hypocrisy, or most often, and perhaps most confoundingly, he would tell a story. And on one of those occasions, some of the religious folk were grumbling, as they often did and still do, about the company that Jesus was keeping, these unrepentant sinners. And Jesus was perhaps feeling particularly feisty that day. So he says, okay, three stories for the price of one. Here I've got. You have the sheep and the shepherd, and a story about a woman and her lost coin, and then finally a story about two brothers and their father. You probably know the story. So a man had two sons, the younger of whom demanded his inheritance early, essentially saying, hey, hey, dad, I wish you were dead, and departed, only to quickly squander every penny and find himself envying the pigs eating in the muddy field in which he'd been hired to tend, having hit bottom. And in Luke 15, Jesus' story continues. But he came to his senses, and he said, how many of my father's hired hands have, have bread enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll, I'll, I'll get up, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you, and sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. And I love this detail. It's the first time I've really actually keyed in on this specific element. It's his hunger that sends him home. Not his contrition, not because he's particularly sorry. His motive is still ultimately self-serving. And culturally, everyone listening to this story being told has an expectation and is ready to see what happens when he returns home to face the music to face the judgment and the just consequences for such an unthinkable dishonoring of his father. But as you know, that's not the story that Jesus is telling. So he set off and went to his father, but while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I am 
pathetic I am at your mercy. I deserve nothing. These internal scripts of, of shame and condemnation that become so embedded within us. And yet the Father's response remains one that we can hardly fathom. Grace, extravagant and entirely unearned. And the Father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf, the one that we've been saving for a most special occasion and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. And if you're familiar with the story, you also know that at this point, the older brother who had worked obediently for all of these years is bitter, beside himself, self-righteous and incensed that the father would even dare imagine forgiving the son who had so gallingly dishonored him, even as he denies his own father as well by refusing to join the feast. But here too, the love of the father pursues and confounds and does for both children what they cannot do themselves. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because he repeats, this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Stop keeping score. I'm not keeping score. My love does not care whether or not you think that you or anybody else for that matter is worthy of it. My love is not afraid of looking foolish. My love harbors no resentment. My love saw you in the distance and ran out to meet you and embraced you before a single syllable of regret could even form on your tongue. My love has no condition. My love has no beginning. My love has no ends. And so when I was younger, I'm turning 40 in January. I'm not super excited about it. And I'm guessing that when many of you were younger, we thought that our lives were the story of how we left home. Departed, in some cases, escaped. In the distant dreams we had, in all the places we'd see, in the things we'd accomplish. And as, as I get older, and as Jesus reminds us, I'm starting to realize that it was never a story about leaving home. Your story, my story, has always been about coming home. Not literally to the place and the people from which you came, but back to the deeper, the truer love that is and always was. The one we forget about when the world makes us hard, that declares good news to the oppressed, that heals the brokenhearted, that proclaims liberty to the captive, a love that was with you before your first cells divided in the womb. That's the love you return home to. So my friends, uh, Dan Allender, Dr. Dan Allender, he's a, a brilliant writer, teacher, counselor. Uh, he would add fly fisherman, that's like his primary thing, specializing in the realm of, of trauma. He talks about story in terms of a journey to recover shalom, which means more than peace. It's, it's, the, it's the harmony, it's the, the wholeness of Eden that has been inevitably a shalom shattered by the very nature that we enter into a world so marked by sin. 
that then it becomes for us, in this waking life, a shalom that is forever sought. Can we ever get back to the garden? And it's at, the, at this point, cast into the wilderness of, the, of the, the finite, the earthly life, that we face this critical question, will I trust in God's goodness to protect me and provide for my needs, or will I trust in myself? Is it my story, or is it God's story? And some of us spend our entire lives only trusting in ourselves. We never come home. Planting this church, it feels like I'm answering this question every single day. But so are you, answering this question every single day. And when we come home to the kind of embrace that says you already belong, that you are already enough, that you have nothing to prove, and that has never not been true, the story that we are living changes. You are a beloved child of God. And no matter your title, your vocation, your situation, your life becomes an unfolding narrative resounding with the promise of a God who assures us that not only will we see goodness in the land of the living, but that we are already building toward heaven in the here and now. Our hearts fixed on that day when death will be no more, mourning and crying no more, because the first things have gone away and the one on the throne declares, I am making all things new. That's the story. We get to be the sign and the foretaste of that new world. What story do you want your life to tell? I've been staring at this picture on my desk all week. It's taken about six years ago. And I want to end with this. Beloved, beloved brothers, beloved sisters, beloved children of God, your Abba, Father, Mother wants nothing more than for you to crawl into their lap and simply be loved. You are already enough, you are worthy, you are seen, you always have been. And if God continues to hold that hope for me, then maybe, just maybe, it hasn't been the last time for my child either. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you call us from isolation into restoration. Help us to end our wandering, making circles in the dark. Help us to return home, prodigal sons and daughters, to find you rushing out to meet us. Remind us that once we were lost and you pursued us, poured yourself out, taking the form of a servant, a holy vessel, suffered and died, and you reached down into the dark of your own grave and further still and brought us back to life with you. Liberate us into the fullness of that resurrection promise and grant us the words to tell often the stories of redemption, the glimpses of shalom restored. We pray this in gratitude and abiding hope in your name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.